Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are continuing this morning in our series on the pastoral epistles, the books of 1st, 2nd, Timothy and Titus, they're Paul's letters to these two men, and Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciousnesses are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, your word that we've read this morning, we thank you for it. We thank you for your presence that is here. We ask you in these next few moments of time, uh, as we participate in this God-ordained activity of the preaching of the word of God, the heralding of biblical truth, the unpacking of Scripture, that we may see your glory and that in turn your glory would transform us into your image. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We read this morning the Apostle Paul writing a letter to his protege in the Gospel, his son, In the Gospel, Timothy, Paul is Timothy's mentor. These writings that he writes to Timothy are very prescriptive. They contain language where Paul is telling Timothy what to do. When you read this, there's no doubt who's calling the shots. There's no doubt who is the mentor and who is the one being mentored. But these are not only the writings of Paul, they are also the writings of Holy Scripture. And just as Timothy submitted himself to these words in his pastoral ministry in Ephesus, so should we, so must we submit ourselves to the Word of God. I grew up hearing a lot about submission to the man of God. And I'm not saying that there's not something to that, but what I'm drastically more concerned about is our submission to the Word of God. Because we live in and we are products of a very individualistic, me-first, singular society. It's not like that everywhere. There are nations in the world today where the mentality is very different. The, The self is not considered first. The group is considered first. It's the mentality of that society, but not so with us. And so that makes submission of any kind a very hard pill to swallow. It's hard for us to submit to anything. But as believers, we are submitted to God and we are submitted to His Holy Word. Because the safest place and the place where the most contentment and the most joy to be found is in submission to God and His Holy Word. So Paul writes, the first two verses, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, you could say last days, 
Again, we define last days biblically as the period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is scripturally, that is the last days. That's that term is between the first and second coming of Christ. In the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That scripture should scare us. It should sober us. That it is possible for people who were in the faith, Paul says, depart from the faith. That means they were in the faith and they have left the faith, but they didn't become neutral. They devoted themselves. As devoted as they were to the faith, they have now devoted themselves to teaching deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The idea that the powers of darkness can teach things. How, does the, how do the powers of darkness teach things? They teach things through people, the sons, the children of disobedience. This is, I say it a lot, but I want us to understand this is what spiritual warfare is. The enemy puts out not bad ideas. You know, there are bad ideas and then there are evil, wicked ideas. The mouth of hell is open today, putting out evil, wicked ideas. Something has been released. I, I say it regularly that the idea, the, the gender discussion that is going on right now, it's not a political discussion, it's not a liberal conservative discussion, it is a hell, Satan himself, putting out something that attacks the very order of creation in the first chapters of Genesis. God makes male and female. That is the attack from hell. That is what you're seeing right now played out in the media is spiritual warfare. We counter that not by driving our cars around the borders of the zip code and taking authority. We battle that by ideas, theology, right truth. I cannot say that word enough this morning, truth. We battle it through biblical truth. We say, no, Scripture asserts this and this, and that is the battle. That is the essence of spiritual warfare. And Paul is tapping into this to Timothy, saying, there are going to be people in your city in Ephesus. We already know Ephesus is an evil, wicked city, but it's not the pagans. It's not the people who never knew God. It's even people who have walked away. We are seeing this this morning in multiple denominations, denominations that historically have been evangelical conservative denominations who are, it happened this week, a mass exodus from a denomination that once was considered a conservative biblical denomination. And finally the split happens after years of disagreement over things that are crystal clear in Scripture. That is spiritual warfare. So you will have today in the pulpits, even in our city, in the metroplex, you will have people stand in the pulpit who live a lifestyle that is an abomination to God that will proclaim the Word of God. They had it now, they had it 2,000 years ago. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciousnesses are seared. There's a lot of nonsense going on in verses 1 and 2. There's a lot of nonsense being proclaimed from pulpits this morning. Just because you say something does not make it true. Just because you hear something or read something does not make it true. And what I hear this morning in my generation, in my culture, more than ever, is people crying out, asking the question, what is truth? Would somebody give us truth? We hear a lot about, we've heard this term the last few years, fake news. It's been a term that's been dubbed, but I'm not, I'm not here this morning to talk about fake news. What I'm very concerned about is fake theology, bad ideas about God. There are at least three denominations and faith traditions that I could pick up yesterday in my head thinking about that I have heard about in the mainstream news, mainstream, not religious publications, mainstream news that are getting attention because of the controversy among them and 
at the core, it is arguing over who gets to draw the lines of orthodoxy. Simply meaning, what is, what is accepted? What is the established belief about anything? And now there's, you know, we want to redraw the lines about what biblical orthodoxy is. And it's a fair question. Because where do you get the right to say you're right? Where do we get the right to say we are right? Beware of people who say, God told me, and that's the end of their that's the end of their backing. God told me. Well, anybody can say that. <clears throat> Beware of people when they say that, when what God says to them, supposedly, does not align with Scripture. <clears throat> I am not saying God doesn't speak to people. I have known prophets in my life. I have known people that when they come up to me and say, thus saith the Lord, I believe the Lord has spoken to it's a matter of trust, it's a matter of validation, it's a matter of having a track record with that, it's a matter of knowing that person's life. I'm not saying that God does not speak to people directly. He does, He speaks to us. But when someone says, thus saith the Lord, especially from a pulpit, and it doesn't align with Scripture, that person is wrong, they didn't hear from God, and Scripture's right. End of story. There's no other conversation to be had. If you need a word from the Lord, pick up your Bible, read it correctly, and you will have a word from God. Who gets to set the standard, though, for what biblical truth is? Well, historically, Orthodox Christianity means certain things, but it also gives leeway in other areas to disagree about those things. To be an Orthodox Christian would be someone who the resurrection of Christ is non-negotiable. The deity of Christ is non-negotiable. Much of Orthodox Christianity centers around the person of Jesus Christ. I mentioned Karl Barth in the opening, and the, one of the reasons why he was so influential in the early part of the 20th century was through the 1800s, through the 19th century, so much of what came out of, in particular, Germany, because Germany, the last couple hundred years, has been the theological center of the world, much of what came out of Germany were people who lived in Scripture who did not believe in Orthodox Christianity at all. Um, they studied it in a different way, and they, the deity of Christ was questioned. There were a lot of things that were, to us, would be a given, that out of all their studies, uh, it was not, and it influenced much of what happened in Germany through the 20th century. And Karl Barth comes along from that area of the world and says no. Um, and he takes Christ, uh, in Karl Barth's theology, he takes Christ to a level that very few people take him. I mean, it is all about Jesus in Barth's theology. Uh, some, some people will say that he, he was so focused on that that he was minimizing the, the, the Scripture because it was, it was just so much about Jesus, but he did, he, it was a helpful recovery to bring the deity of Christ back in question because this is what it means to be an Orthodox Christian, is to believe certain things while having leeway about other things. There are Christians that I don't agree with in certain areas, but I won't break communion with them because, again, if we have to agree on every single fine point, we will end up becoming a denomination of one person. And so there must be room in some areas for uh, not seeing things eye to eye. So according to Paul in verse 1, there are people who once were in the faith who now, because of the teachings of demons, are devoted to bad ideas about God. Because what you believe about God matters. It matters what you believe about God because belief affects behavior. Belief drives behavior. Bad theology or bad God ideas or bad life ideas, they spread now more than ever because we are connected now more than ever. On a computer network, one computer can be infected with a virus, and if that computer is connected to a network, that virus gets pushed out to all the other computers, to the entire network. And once every computer is infected, it shuts everything down. I had a an IT guy tell me one time, he said, one of the things that hackers use is they'll take a thumb drive with a virus on it and they'll just throw it in the parking lot. And somebody will get out of their car and see it and go, what do we all do? I wonder what's on the thumb drive. 
So they go into their office and they stick the thumb drive in their computer and that's it. That, that's the end. That computer has now been affected, infected, and it infects the entire network all because somebody was curious. Bad ideas get shared out and pushed out the same way because we are all on the same network, especially today, now more than ever. We're, as a rule, listening to, hearing too much of the same thing. It's an interesting study in human behavior that people join networks without ever asking, is this the right network I should be on and what are the consequences? What is the fallout of me being in this network? Because if you were in a network of people, you were going to become infected for better or worse with what everybody else has already has. And once you're on that network, you have little say on what gets pushed out to you. And so this is true without technology. People live in networks without technology, but technology takes it to the next level. So it starts with the radio. The radio is nothing more than a network that allowed good and bad ideas to be shared. Television was the next network. In fact, it became known as network television back in the day. This is what it was called. The idea that uh, people you've never met were imported into your home as real, visible, living, breathing people. And then of course, the last 25, 30 years, the internet, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, is the king of all connections. And yes, there are good ideas on all these networks, um, but we are fools with our heads in the sand with the high tide rising if we don't acknowledge and warn people against the flood of ignorance and stupidity that is being pumped down our throats through all these networks. The horrific, the bad, the fake ideas. Now, no dispute, there are other types of bad ideas being imported into there. Everything from political to health. You can read some things about your health that you should do that are probably, um, probably pretty bad ideas, but they're there because it's the open platform. What I'm concerned about this morning, what God ideas are being spread like the Ebola virus. You say, well, that's it's not really a fair comparison, it's not really that bad. And I'd say, no, I agree because Ebola or any other virus like that can only kill you. Bad God ideas can wreck your life for eternity. And there are a lot of those. I mean, I'm just, I'm just not to speak about these specifically, but some of these ideas that pick up is, you know, that, that acronym that was out there for a while, YOLO, you only live once. It's not a new idea, it's not a new tagline. Um, or it's not a new idea, it is a new tagline on an old idea. The Epicureans from 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul ran into them. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That was their philosophy. Live for life now because you're going to be dead soon, so make it all happen now. Nothing else matters. The pursuit of pleasure, all about me. I'm getting mine because I'm going to be dead soon. Except that's not true. All of this is a product of a postmodern secular culture without God and its worldview. And the truth is you don't only live once. Uh, the implication is you only live once and then you die, but you live once and then you live forever. Your body is bound by time, but your soul, your being, is free throughout all eternity and will live somewhere throughout all of eternity. So our, our definition of life is sensual and it's material, but of course life is none of these things. The real you had a beginning, but it has no end. So it matters what you believe about God and His Word because it will affect you not just in this life, but in the life to come. This is why we need strong preaching, we need strong teaching, we need to hear what thus says the Word of God. We need to know what truth is. So Paul continues to write, he says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We need to be, as Paul said, a good servant of Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. We need to know what truth is. We need to have a standard in our life that accepts nothing but truth. All truth 
flows from the one who said, I am the truth and the way and the light. And this book, the scriptures, which we call the word of God, is full of all truth. What is truth? Well, the Apostle John, in John 1.1, when he writes, In the beginning was the Word. He's writing, in his words, he's writing, In arcade logos. The Word is the logos. That is not a God idea. The Logos was an idea that already existed in John's time. John is living in this time of the Roman Empire. Um, they're all speaking Greek. But the Logos is an idea that comes before John. It actually comes from a Greek philosopher. It's older than John. This idea of the Logos is it's the rational thought. It's what truth is. We need, so this is where we get logic. Logic comes from the word logos. It's the same idea. What is logical? What is truth? And so in Greek philosophy, they already were talking about the logos. This idea about rational thinking, rational thought. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sits down. He points back to Genesis 1 when it says, in the beginning, God. So when John pins these words, anybody writing these words unmistakably is going to think, oh, he's echoing what Genesis 1 said. He's going back to the very beginning of creation. And John says, in the beginning was the Logos. And he's grabbing a secular idea in the culture and he's importing it into who Jesus Christ is because the Word, the Logos, is going to be made flesh in just a few verses. And John is going to unmistakably say, Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, the Son of God, He is, like all you Greek philosophers trying to figure it out, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. The true rational thought, the true logic in this world, in this universe, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the word in the beginning, reaching back to before creation, has now been made flesh and dwells among us as the person of Jesus Christ. This is why when Jesus says, I am the truth, he's echoing all of these ideas, truth, rational thought, logic, order, all stem from me. So there is this, there's a pushback sometimes because... We say the Bible is the Word of God, but nowhere in the Bible does it actually say it's the Word of God. And do we believe it's the Word of God? Yes, it is, it is the words of God. It, it is the words put on paper by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but this is more the words of God, like words put together to form sentences and ideas. Jesus when we say He is the Word, we're not talking about something formed by 26 letters. We're talking about something much bigger than that. Jesus is the rational truth, the expression of ultimate reality from God made into human flesh. That's who the person of Jesus Christ is. So all truth in the world today flows from the one who said, I am the truth. He didn't say, I am a truth. You don't get to pick Jesus as one of multiple options that it is truth. It's one of the biggest problems we have in our culture today is a postmodern thinking that says, you can have your truth and I'll have my truth. This is why our society is still somewhat more accepting about people who they don't agree with. And we're seeing some of that change. But in terms of Christianity, there was a day... And there is an idea and a mindset that says you can't be a Christian. You must be what I am or I'm going to persecute you. I'm going to kill you. We don't see that today because the postmodern thinking that really sprang up hardcore, say, in the 80s and just has completely taken hold now, um, it's a different way of thinking. It says you can have your Christianity. Just do not tell me that it's the only truth. Don't tell me it's the only way to live, the only way to think. You can do you, I'll do my own set of truth. But inherent in 
Christianity's identity is the belief that no, we have the ultimate truth. And unless your ideas import into Scripture and Christ, you don't have truth. And so people look at that and say it's dogmatic, it's, um, it's shallow, it's a small way of thinking, it's, it's bigoted. Because that's where the persecution, that's where the tension comes, is that I will not accept your truth. They're fine accepting our truth as long as we accept theirs. But that's not how Christianity works. Christianity makes a dogmatic claim that Jesus Christ sits and rules and reigns supremely over all other things. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's a complete rabbit trail, nowhere in my notes, but I think it's important for us to see that because this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about ideas about God that are biblical. I have been helped by the study of the principles of biblical interpretation. We do this, we've done this on Wednesday nights now in our Bible studies, talking about some, some basic ideas and ways to, to read Scripture. And I am not minimizing the need to be Spirit-filled so that the Spirit can guide us and illuminate us with truth from the Word of God. Absolutely. You need to be full of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a large part of why, when I was talking earlier about the people who read Scripture, the, the whole German school that read Scripture, they studied it, but they weren't full of the Holy Spirit. They weren't believers. So they, they couldn't see what was, what was there. You can have a little old lady with a third grade education who never um, has read one theology book who can sit down with her Bible and God can illuminate and open up scripture to her. And she can see things that people who can read it in the original language completely miss because this is a God-breathed book and you need to know the author personally to really get that uh, meaning from, from scripture. So I said that to qualify this, to say that being full of God's Spirit is not a guarantee that you will rightly discern Scripture. We must know how to and read this book. So the, the genre of Christian literature encompasses a wide variety of book titles, topics, subgenres. Uh, I'll go into Barnes and Noble and I'll see this whole section of Christianity and it's all different kinds of books. I mean, dieting, exercise, finance, um, love stories, Christian romance novels, leadership by the Bible. Years ago, what was it? Jesus Christ, CEO. It's like leading people in business according to the principles that Jesus taught. And um, I'm not against those things. I've read some of those. We can be helped by books written by Christian authors when they're based upon a biblical model, no argument. But regardless of how well written these books are, how gifted the author is, the words on the page that they read are not infallible. So it's good and right to read all books, to listen to all preachers, myself included, with a little bit of skepticism. Like You should be able to back that up, preacher. You should be able to back that up, author. If you're going to claim you're coming from a biblical angle, back it up. If you're giving me conjecture, back it up with well-reasoned logic and thinking. Because the author may be inspired, but the ideas that that person, he or she communicates, are not infallible just because they're inspired, just because they're anointed. It's, it always terrifies me, if I really stop and think about it, what it means to stand in this pulpit. It scares me. Because I know that there are some people that will, ex that will accept what I say because I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. If I didn't know what I was talking about, I shouldn't be standing up here. The reality is I'll get some things wrong. I'll change my mind on some things. So it's why intentionally, as much as possible, I try not to import my own ideas and say my job is simply to be the one that exposits on Scripture. Because it is impossible to separate the influence from the writer's pen. The life of the reader is changed by the words they read and internalize. I mean, how many have ever read a good book and just felt like you had a good meal? It's like, wow, that was so good. Um, that's why I, I love reading. I can read things and go, oh, that was so rich. Uh, 
The style may be poetic, it may take on a story, but regardless of the form the words take, readers and listeners are shaped by what they read and hear. Ideas travel on the words of paragraphs and sentences. And so the Bible is the Spirit of God in writing and the unique quality of Scripture. So think about everything I just said about what people read or what people write and speak on their own. The Bible is different because the unique quality of Scripture is what makes it infallible. The Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. This gives us insight into the relationship between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God was given in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says there was a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the fundamental nature of God is that God is Spirit. So the Holy Spirit falls upon people with the promise in Acts 2.39 that is presence is for everybody. So his spirit moving upon men like he did in Acts 2 is also what produced the Bible. It, the, the, the Holy Spirit moves upon holy men of old, the Bible says, and that is how they wrote scripture under divine inspiration. So the Bible's not just good literature or motivational monologue. I mean, did you ever in, in high school, did you ever have a class where you studied the Bible as literature? A lot of high schools do. They can, in an English class, they can actually read the Bible uh, as literature and study it as literature in an English class because they're reading an old story, just like they read Shakespeare. Uh, and but it, it's like, yes, it's beautiful literature, but this is not Shakespeare. This is the God-inspired words for our life. It is the Holy Spirit in a book. It is God anointed words that transform every life. So the, the Apostle Peter writes this. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit moves, the Bible is produced through the pen and parchment of holy men. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. The words of God are the vehicle through which the spirit travels. The word of God and the spirit of God are beautifully intertwined and they are inseparable. They are indistinguishable. We read scripture, we talk to God. You can't untangle what, if you wanted to, you couldn't untangle those two ideas, the word of God and the Holy Spirit. This is why the Bible is supreme over every other book. It has intrinsic value built into its origin. It is God himself in a book. Everything the Bible declares is true and right and just, and anything ever spoken by any person ever must align with Scripture if we are going to consider it truth. It is a book full of inexhaustible revelation. My grandpa used to tell me you could read one verse the rest of your life and God could every day show you a new angle. It's like a diamond with a thousand points of light. And it's happened to me so many times in my life. I'll read a scripture and I'll go, whoa, I've never seen that before. It's like, wow, how did I miss it all my life? Some of it is personal maturity, us going to a deeper understanding, but there is an element of it as well of God saying, you didn't need that until now. And now you need it. And now I'm going to show it to you. That's why we can read the same book over and over and over again in the Bible and just see glorious reality. We spend a lifetime reading the scriptures repeatedly and we never exhaust their revelation declaring the glory of God. There is no limit to the depth of the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. And we know the scriptures are true because our obedience to them is authenticated by a life that is full of joy. As we read the scriptures and allow them to become part of us, then they begin to earn our trust. And a guy named Sean one time, he said, how do you know the Bible's true? He was not a believer. He goes, how do you know? That's a great question. Like, there was a day in America when you could appeal to people and say, because the Bible says so. That doesn't work anymore. It's like, so what? What's the Bible? It's just another book. I don't need that book. I said, Sean, I could tell you a lot of things. I said, the, 
the simplest way I can tell you is that from personal experience, when I've read Scripture and followed it, my life goes well, and when I've read Scripture and don't follow it, it doesn't. It's like the proof's in the pudding. Like, it works. It works personally. The Savior we find in the Bible is the same God we encounter in prayer in our, in our daily walk. We read about Jesus in the Bible, and it, it resonates. It's like, yes, that's the same God that I experience. We read the story of redemption, and it harmonizes with the story of our own redemption in Christ. His faithfulness in the Scriptures we read about is consistent with His faithfulness to us. We read about His faithfulness to other people, and we say, yes, that's exactly how He works with me. The Word of God is alive, it is self-authenticating, and it is self-revealing. And that is one of the reasons why coming to church to worship is vital in our, walks with, in our walk with God, because we are saturated with bad ideas all week long. We're bombarded with these bad ideas. We need to come to a place where worship occurs not just in song, but in the preaching of the Word of God. So in nearly every church today, whether they seat 20 people or 20,000, the pulpit, the podium, the lectern, whatever's used, it stands just like this one does, front and center of the room. This is both practical, but it's also symbolic. It wasn't always the case in Christianity. There was a time when the table for communion was, was front and center and the pulpit was off to the side. Part of the, don't know if everybody would be as fascinated with this as I am, but I'm fascinated with the, um, how church architecture changes with the Reformation, um, how things shift around, how buildings are, begin to be built differently as an expression of the faith. And one of the things that happens is the pulpit moves to the center to say the Word of God is the most important thing that happens in this room today. It's not the focus on the man, it is the focus upon the Word. The preaching of the Scriptures is a vital part of our worship. We may have an occasional worship service that does not include the preaching of the Word of God, but that would be the exception and not the rule, because preaching is not a separate component of the worship service. Rather, the preaching is an integral part of our worship. Preaching is worship. What I am doing right now is worship in the sense that I am rejoicing over the Word of God and the wonders of Jesus and His kingdom while they are being revealed to the people of God. We are worshiping right now. It's not wor I've seen services advertised, it's going to be worship in the Word, and I know what they mean by that. We're going to worship in song, and then we're going to have the Word of God. Like, worship is segmented away from, from preaching, saying no. It's worship in the Word. It's exalting in Scripture. Our rejoicing over the Bible is worship in its highest form. The success or failure of a local church does not hinge on her programs, her facilities, her musical talent. It lies in the power of the declared gospel of Jesus Christ. It is preaching that creates the tone, the pace, and the rhythm for everything else that happens in a church. Priorities and values are revealed in the content that flows from the pulpit. You want to hear any church's values, listen to what's being preached. You don't have to attend a church long to know if the blood of Jesus Christ and the fire of hell is central to their theology. Worship goes beyond music. Great preaching is not determined by the style the preacher brings to the pulpit, by the volume he has in his voice, by the entertainment value or the number of laughs he gets a minute. Great preaching is when the preacher stands in the pulpit, declares and heralds and trumpets the Word of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, when he exalts, when he rejoices within the Scripture. The great revivals throughout history, check it, every single time there has been a true awakening in a culture, spiritually. It has been ushered in by a revival of prayer, a revival of repentance, and a revival of the preaching of the Word of God every single time. Paul writes, verse 6, trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. He says in verse 7 that we should train ourselves in godliness. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Exercise 
So what Paul's saying, he's talking about physical exercise, has some value. It does. The, the greatest limitation of bodily exercise is it is temporary. Um, a dead weightlifter can't bench press 10 pounds. He's dead. Um, everything he did was temporary. All of his exercise was temporary. And I'm not discrediting working out. I went to the gym a couple times a while back. And by a while back, I mean 31 years ago. Um, that was, I think, the last time I've been. But I'm not discrediting it. Like, we should take care of our bodies. We should, uh, you know, we all have areas that we could do better in. And, and I say that because there's an idea out there that, especially the way that this was written in, in older versions of the Bible, it's like, see, Paul was saying that your body doesn't matter. And it's like, no, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that it's limited in what you can do for your body because it's temporary. Um, if you're going to fulfill dreams and ambitions in this life, this is uh, the horse God gave you to, to carry those dreams and ambitions. And um, you need to take care of that to, to realize what you want to do in life. So I'm not minimizing those things. But no matter what we do, it's temporary. This body will be dust someday. What Paul is saying is to exercise godliness benefits this life and the life to come. And that's what makes it greater of greater value than physical exercise. This is not the first time that Paul speaks of godliness in this letter. Back in chapter 3, I preached about it a couple weeks ago, Paul speaks of the mystery of godliness. Remember, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he, he's speaking of the revelation that's in Jesus Christ. And then he goes down to that. Remember, we said it was like a, it's a poem, it's a song that Paul is quoting. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen of angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Two weeks ago, I spent a whole sermon unpacking each line of that. This is the mystery of godliness. So it is no small thing to come to the understanding of who Jesus Christ is. It is a magnificent revelation that we should not take lightly. It is a mystery. The mystery is the once hidden mystery, Paul says. It was used to be hidden. It's now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is godliness? Like we're going to talk about godliness and exercising godliness and it having more of advantage in exercising godliness than it does in physical exercise. What is godliness? Godliness is, is asking the question, how then should we live in light of the revealing of Jesus Christ? The mystery has been revealed. What does that mean to us? How then should we live? It's a wonderful book by Francis Schaeffer from decades ago with that with that title, you know, how then should we live? How, what is our response in this life to that mystery? Paul and the rest of the Bible are never far removed from asking the question, how should we live? In light of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That little phrase, how then should we live, which is our phrase, summing up what Paul's talking about, that may be as representative of the New Testament as any other phrase I can think of. Like God has revealed His glory, what's our response? This is what godliness is, living a godly life. It's Christ and us. It's His revelation and our ethics. How do we respond in life? Our right living is in response to the revelation of Jesus Christ that has been given to us. I think this is the way, biblically in the New Testament, that we are to practically live out our personal holiness. Rather than a preacher or a church or a denomination saying, now you do this, 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 and this, and you don't do this, this, and this, and you go here and you don't go there, you follow this list of conduct codes and that will keep you saved. Well, I'm saved by the power of the same gospel now, and I'm going to be kept by the same power of the gospel as what justified me. If Christ saved me, and my conduct code keeps me saved, I'm keeping myself saved. That is the essence of what legalism is. I have very little confidence, meaning none, 
to keep myself safe. Like, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I've got it from here. I'll keep myself straight through these rules. It's a very legalistic way to live. But if we instead look at Christ and look at the cross and look at His bloody, brutal, mangled body hanging on a cross and look at the resurrection and look at the ascension and look at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and say, He did that for me, my response to that is going to be a personal holiness that is not dictated by a conduct code. It's going to be a response by saying, I'm grateful. I live out of an attitude and abundance of gratefulness. And I am going to do everything I can to honor God in everything that I do, from my conduct to my language to my entertainment to my dress to my choice of friends to where I go, where I don't go, what I wear, what I don't wear, on and on and on and on and on and on. It's going to be a response. My ethics are going to be out of... My ethics, my personal holiness are going to be a way I worship Him. Say, God, I honor you with this lifestyle. Am I going to get it right all the time? No. Am I going to go to hell because I don't get it right all the time? No. I'm not saved or lost by my conduct. I'm saved and lost by Christ being on my side, justifying me, declaring me righteous. That's my salvation. The rest of it's sanctification. I live out my sanctification, and every time I come to church, every time I gather with His people, I just walk in and say, Jesus, I want to be, walk out of here and be just a little more like You. I know at some point this week before next Sunday, I'm going to do and say and act some way that's not going to be God-honoring. I mean, I know I am. Maybe you all are going to be saints for the next seven days, but I'll do something the next seven days and go, still not there yet. What am I going to do? I'm going to go back to the well say, Jesus, make me more like you. Make me more like you. Our right living is in response to the revelation of Jesus Christ that God has given to us. It is no small thing to say, I believe in Jesus. So as I close, look at the relationship between these last three verses. <clears throat> Paul is talking about a saying in verse 8. He's saying this saying, so he's, it's become a cliche to say that exercise has some value, but godliness has infinite value because it is eternal. So your godliness, so maybe another word for godliness would be piety, your personal piety. It's a word we don't use as much anymore, but Christianity, even in our culture, that, that was a really common word that kind of fell out of favor because we don't want to talk about piety. I think it's because we, it has a negative connotation. We talk about people who are pious. You know, we see somebody kind of with their nose in the air and they have this kind of dour look on their face. It's like, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about people who have a, a prayer life with God, a personal devotion to Him, a living out of your faith that is good in this life and it will benefit you in the life of, to come. And I close just reading verse 10. He says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set upon the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those that believe. So two things. First part of that verse, he uses the words toil and strive. And sometimes that's what living out godliness is going to be. I'm going to fight. I'm going to work. I'm going to strive not to be saved. My, my toiling, my work is not to gain salvation. That's a debtor's ethic. It's not how God wants us to live. I have peace with God because I've been justified. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Because I didn't have peace with God before then. God really wasn't all that much for me because I was a sinner and God hates sin. I was in trouble. I was going to suffer the wrath of hell because of my sin. I wasn't okay before justification. But when through the basis of my faith, God declares me righteous in Christ, I now can have peace with God. Romans 5.1. We love that verse if God be for us, who can be against us? 
that gets pulled out of context. It's like, yeah, God's on my side. It's like, it's more than that. It's that God was against me before. God is for me now because of the beauty of justification. It's the essence of the gospel. Christ dying for our sins, justifying me through faith. So when he talks about toil and striving, he's not talking about to be saved. He's not talking about to gain favor with God. He's talking about I'm going to fight every day to be godly. My godliness is going to be a fight every day. If you do not fight for your personal piety, it'll never happen. This world will steamroll you. It has to be intentional. I'm going to be intentional about my godliness in the middle of my job, my family, my finances, my hobbies. There's going to be an intentionality to say all of this gets done through the work of godliness. And the second part, that phrase... This is why, and this is what I close with, because we have our hope set upon the living God. That's my hope. My hope's not in the market. My hope's not in political party, a political candidate, an idea, a group, a church, a denomination, preacher. My hope is in the living God. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, this morning, while every word that I've spoken has been with good intention, only your words have truth in life. And so we point all of us back to your word and to the illumination of the Holy Spirit this morning to say as we close this service, on the first day of the week, the first thing that we do starting out this new week, living in the rhythms of the seasons that you ordained for us, that we carry out one more week in our life, our very finite, limited life, we're going to carry out one more week, and we're going to do it unto the Lord, asking you, Lord, that, uh, that the ideas that we hear every day that are filtered through the Word of God, things we read are filtered through scripture the people we talk to uh, that we're combating bad ideas with good this is what you called us to do and then in doing so that as we speak truth that that truth would be anointed and that it would bring illumination to the lives of people to very broken vessels because it is because of that brokenness because of those cracks that's how the light gets in and that light would get into someone's heart and they would see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ and they would come to see you as Savior. Lord, keep your hand upon us. Grant us wisdom to walk wise and not as foolish people in this world. Lord, and let us be lights and witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.